Hey, it's good to see you guys. Um, so kids, you guys are dismissed. Elementary kids, uh, what, preschool or K through fifth? And then um, youth group is going out today. Youth group is going out. So if you're middle or high school, you are welcome to escape the building uh, at this point. So God bless you guys that are here. Sometimes you'll hear a pastor say, well, it seems like half our church is missing. Well, am I right? Half our church is missing. I will say, I'm not surprised. The email started coming in about Friday. Oh, Pastor Bill, we're traveling this weekend. Oh, Pastor Bill. Then Saturday was, oh, Pastor Bill, we're sick. Oh, Pastor Bill, we have COVID. And this morning I woke up to a host of emails, people that are sick and out. So do pray. I mean, of course, there's something going around. It's no fun to be sick anytime, but certainly no fun to be sick at Christmas time. So pray for all the folks in our church that are sick and for those that are traveling, for any of you that might be traveling. Um, now, everybody who wrote me said they were going to be watching the live stream. So chances are we could crash the internet this morning with all of the traffic on our, we're just going to break YouTube, but um, for those of us that are here, uh, I have a message that I'm excited about, and I hope that you're going to be blessed by, um, but before we get there, so next Sunday is actually Christmas Day, and so people asked me, Pastor Bill, are we going to have church on Christmas Day, and I smiled and I said, yes, it seems like a good day that we should have church on, uh, on Christmas Day. So uh, you are welcome to come in your jammies. You're welcome to come in a suit. You're welcome to come in a gown. Whatever you want to come in on a Christmas morning. But do come. Um, as Pastor Chris mentioned, the, the kids, the children's ministry is going to um, uh, sing a song for us as part of the service. And we'll have a Christmas message, of course, and some extra worship. Uh, a little shorter message. Uh, praise the Lord. And so uh, it's going to be a great day next week. So um, we hope that you'll be here with us. And then uh, on New Year's Day, of course, we have, so I'm not sure somebody who knows math could tell me how often Christmas actually falls on a Sunday. And then of course, New Year falls on a Sunday as well. But we will have church both of those days. And uh, so two Sundays from now, we're kicking off the new year, which means we're kicking off a brand new Through the Bible uh, program as a church. So as a church for the last handful of years, we have gone through the Bible on a, a corporate kind of a reading plan. And this last year, we changed things up a little bit. And as Pastor Chris mentioned, we made a dwell available so people could listen through the Bible uh, as well as read. And, uh, you know, this year it was a little bit confusing because the plan that we did, I think it was a great plan. But it had an Old Testament reading and a New Testament reading and a reading from the Psalms each day. And sometimes it was a little confusing which one they were, which one they were in. So this year, the plan we're going to go through is just a chronological plan. So it takes the entire Bible in the order that the events happened. And it, you just go straight through the Bible that way. And since we're in one of the Gospels on Sunday mornings, and we will be for the better part probably of next year... Um, it seemed like a good year because, of course, with a chronological plan, you spend 80%, if not more, of the year in the Old Testament, and you don't get to the New Testament until November or, or something like that. But anyway, we hope you'll join us. It is a subscription-based uh, service, but we have a church account that we would love you to be part of, and so there'll be no cost to you. If you want to go through the same plan that we're going through, but you don't want to listen, you'd rather just read... Um, we'll have printed copies available, so you can grab one of those 
at the info table and you can follow along. We're going to try our best to do even a better job this year of incorporating some of what we're reading together as a church into the weekly newsletter and into the Sunday service and into those kinds of things. So it really is something that we're all doing uh, together. So that's my little dwell spiel. We hope that you'll uh, be part of that. As we start up in the new year, in the weeks two and three, we'll get back to our uh, men's and women's small groups studying through the minor prophets. Great time to jump in if you're not already part of that. Uh, regroup will start back up here again, um, that Wednesday midweek service. And Pastor Jeff's going to be teaching through a brand new book. He's going to be going through the book of Exodus on Wednesday nights. So great opportunity there. And then also that sermon discussion group will start back up again, I think in the second week of January. So anyway, some stuff to look forward to as we get to uh, 2023 off to a great um, start. So with all of that said, let's pray and let's uh, just get ready to jump into the word and let's see what God has for us uh, together this morning. So Father, we do thank you so much. Uh, Lord, for those that are here, Lord, we thank you for those who are home and who are joining us on the live stream. Lord, for those who may be traveling, um, visiting family, Lord, we pray your blessing over all of the ministry, Lord, of all of those here within the church, Lord, that they might do um, during this Christmas season. Lord, we know there are friends and family who don't know you, Lord, and we, so we pray for those opportunities uh, that we have to share uh, just the hope that we have um, because of the birth of your son. And so we pray for all those, Lord, in our church. We also pray this morning, Lord, as we go to your word, the, what we pray each and every time we do, Lord, that you would be our teacher, that you'd give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church, Lord, we ask you to bless this time, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So here we are, right, just a week before Christmas. Uh, I want to thank Pastor Jeff for doing such a great job, uh, great word last week, I think, kind of really kicking us off into this Advent season. Um, he looked, of course, at Luke chapter 2 right? Perhaps the most comprehensive account that we have of the Christmas story. And Pastor Jeff talked to us about an important reminder, right? Uh, the Christmas story as an important reminder to assure us that God keeps his word. You know, a reminder to not get too distracted by the busyness of this year. And most importantly, that reminder to assure us of God's love for us. And I do think that that message, if you didn't get a chance to listen to it, check it out, because it was a great and an important reminder for each one of us as believers in Jesus as we really get prepared to celebrate this Christmas season. And I want to continue kind of along those same lines this morning as we prepare now for Christmas Sunday coming just a week from now. And I want to step back even a little bit further, kind of from the actual Christmas story itself, and look at the coming of Jesus in a little bit of a bigger context, right? So this is kind of the bigger picture, if you will, of the Christmas story, where we get a, a, a great sense of the, the true meaning of Christmas and its place in the plan of human history. And I think that we get some really great insight into all of this into kind of an unlikely sort of a place. So if you turn this morning with me to the book of Galatians, right, it's about halfway through the New Testament, you've got the Gospels, then you've got Acts, and then you've got Romans and the Corinthians, and then comes the letter to the Galatians. So you can 
turn there. If you get to Ephesians, you've gone too far. But the book of Galatians, of course, was one of these letters that was written during the first century by the Apostle Paul, written actually to a group of churches located in a region called Galatia. It's a region kind of of Asia Minor, what we might call sort of Turkey today. And Paul wrote this letter to them, not specifically to explain the Christmas story to them, but really he wrote this letter to them to combat our dear old friend legalism, right? Which we've talked plenty about. Legalism had really started to creep into the church and it was really threatening this brand new thing that Jesus had come to introduce, right? Just like we've been talking about in our studies through the early chapters of Mark. Uh, legalism just threatening this wonderful relationship that we're meant to have with our creator. Now you will be very relieved to know this morning that this is not yet another message about the dangers of religious legalism, right? So Merry Christmas, that's not what we're doing this morning. But as Paul kind of makes his way through his arguments against this kind of a, kind of a legalistic, a really rules-based way of relating to God, he makes what is a, a beautiful and a very insightful, of course, it's a Holy Spirit-inspired kind of a statement in the beginning of chapter 4. And it's a statement that really speaks volumes to us, I think, about the Christmas story. Now, coming up to this point, Paul's just sort of finished a discussion about the purpose of the law, right? The Mosaic law, what the purpose of that was in the whole redemptive plan of God. And then he begins in verse 4 of chapter 4, and he says, but when the fullness of the time had come, that God sent forth his son. And it's just this one phrase, right? Such an important phrase that I want to just really take a few minutes as we start out and really consider together, right? When the fullness of the time had come. Some of your translations may say when the time had come to completion or when the set time had finally come or most simply when the right time came. And many times you'll hear a Bible teacher start to talk about all of the conditions that were present in the first century which really made it the ideal time for the birth of the Savior. They'll talk about the Pax Romana, right? The Roman peace, that sense of stability and that sense of order that Roman rule had brought at that point to much of the world, right? Rome unifying so much of the known world under its central government, along with the infrastructure, right? Those Roman roads which made travel much more possible at that point in human history than it ever had been before in human history, right? Of course, that facilitated then the spread of the gospel. You know, you'll also hear people talk about the fact that at that particular time, that while Rome had conquered militarily, that Greece had conquered culturally, if you will. And, you know, it had provided this kind of a common form, this common Greek language, right, different from classical Greek, but there was a common language now. It became the language of trade. It was spoken throughout the empire, and it really made it possible then for the communication of the gospel message to all kinds of different 
people groups, but through this one common language. Now, from a political perspective, there was a great sense of anticipation amongst the Jewish people of that time when their Messiah would finally arrive, right? To free them from this oppression that they felt in particular now under the rule of Rome, right? From a spiritual perspective, right, even in the non-Jewish, right, in the Gentile world, now, the fact that so many of the false gods of these different regions, their false gods had just failed to protect them from being conquered by Rome. And what was happening is that many of the, the people who were following after these false gods started to abandon the worship of these idols. You know, at the same time in the larger Greek cities, right? All of the Greek philosophy and the Greek science, really it was starting to leave people very empty spiritually, kind of in the same way today that atheism, right? The atheism of so many of the communist governments just leaves a huge spiritual hole in the midst of their populations. So it was a time from a spiritual perspective where the old religions were starting to die out, the old philosophies were empty and they were powerless to really change the lives of people. And the world had really sunk at this point into a kind of a moral abyss that was so low that even the pagans were starting to cry out against it. There was this great spiritual hunger that was everywhere. And so all of these reasons, right, these many reasons are good reasons, right? They're great reasons. They're very plausible regions about why that particular point in history was a good time, maybe even the perfect time for the Christ to come. But all of those reasons are reasons that we see by looking at things from our human perspective, right? And of course, we know God declared that his thoughts what are not our thoughts, his ways are not our ways, that as the heavens are higher above the earth, so are his ways higher than our ways and his thoughts than our thoughts. And though compelling, what I want to suggest to you this morning is that there is so much more to the story, right? That all of these, though good reasons and though right reasons, they're not specifically the only reasons why the father chose this particular time to send his son. Because in a much broader context, right, the sense and the significance of that phrase, when the fullness of time had come, especially at Christmas, what it's communicating to us is that Jesus wasn't randomly born kind of into the arc of human history at the point when human history was ready for him. But really, he was born into human history at precisely the time that God had ordained long, long before. So, so the very first thing for us to remember is that the bigger picture of the Christmas story is that Jesus came here in the fullness of time, right? That his birth at Bethlehem wasn't an accident, it was an appointment. And what it reminds us most importantly is that his birth was a part, his birth is a segment of a much larger story, right? His birth is a segment of a much bigger 
plan. And when we join the Christmas story, right, the birth of Jesus as we see it here in the scriptures, we're actually joining a story out of the Bible right in the middle. It's a story that's already in motion, and it's a story that really began long, long before that point. And so if anyone's going to have any hope of understanding really what his birth represents, they have to have some understanding of the beginning of the story, and as well probably know a little bit about how the story ends. And this, I think, is increasingly where we find ourselves in kind of these deep and troubled waters as it relates to our culture and the Christmas story today. And there's a great illustration of this. It's an old story that I think of always at this time of year. You think about two women who were shopping out just a couple days before Christmas, and they were standing outside of one of those large display windows of one of the major department stores. And as they looked in the window, they saw a nativity scene. Now that's how you know this is an old story because there's no store at all today that would have a nativity scene in the window. But here in the story, here's this nativity scene in the window that these women are looking at. And of course there's the, the stable and the hay and the animals and the shepherds, the wise men, right? Joseph, Mary, the baby Jesus, there, the, all those things, right? And then one woman sort of stands back and she kind of disgustedly remarks to her friend, oh, those Christians. She says they already have Easter, and now they're trying to take over Christmas too, right? <laughs> and it would be funny if we didn't know that this was pretty really true, right? And yet it reminds us of the fact that the more and more secularized that our culture becomes, year after year, the true meaning of Christmas is really much, much more of a mystery to a larger and larger group of people. And you think about the level of confusion that exists concerning the real meaning of Christmas. They have no sense, again, that the Christmas story is simply a part of a much bigger story that's so much bigger than just that story. Now, Please don't mishear me here this morning. I would never ever want to take away from the Christmas story. I never want to take away from the miracle of the incarnation, of the fact that God himself came to earth in the flesh, right? As John tells us, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? That we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth, right? We never want to take away from that. It is the most amazing event in many ways in all of human history. And yet here's my point this morning, is to understand that this story is even more amazing, right? When we see it and when we really understand it as a part of that greater story. That we really understand that it was when the fullness of time had come that God sent forth his son. Here's another way for you guys to think about this. Maybe even for Christmas, you might give somebody a gift, right? Maybe it's some tickets to go up to see some special play or some special performance, an opera or a musical, something up in the city, right? Some wonderful work that has come to town, whatever that might be 
for you. But you make all these arrangements. You know what theater you're going to and you've mapped it out and you know exactly when you need to leave. You even know where you're gonna park, all of those things. And yet on the way, on the day, when you're supposed to go up there, Highway 101 is a mess, right? And you are stuck in this awful traffic and there is no way around it, right? And so you arrive at the theater late. And I don't mean just a little late. I mean really late. Like you get there after the first of the intermissions. You get there somewhere in the middle of what is the second maybe of four acts. And yet if that happened, right, you'd kind of sneak in and sort of settle into your seats next to your friend and you would be at a complete loss to try to understand what it is that's going on in front of you, right? To understand any of the significance of what you're seeing or of what you're hearing or any of these things that are unfolding before your eyes on the stage for the simple reason that you're completely unaware of any of these details of the storyline that had happened kind of setting the stage for this particular scene that you've now stepped into. And so you'd probably find yourself continually leaning over to your friend during acts two, three, and four, kind of whispering back and forth great questions, just trying to put the pieces of this puzzle together, just to try to get enough background on the story to try to understand a little bit about what's actually happening, right? Questions like, well, who's that guy? And, and, and why is he significant? And what did that just mean? And what in the world is that huge thing right in the middle of the stage that they're all looking at, right? But you think about it and that would be the plight, not just of any person that walks in late to a play, but nobody reads a novel by starting out in the middle of the book, right? We need that foundation of everything that's been laid or we have no hope of understanding it or it's almost like somebody walking into the room while you're midway at home trying to watch a Marvel movie, right? And now they're asking you a million questions about what it is that's going on and there's no way that you can possibly catch them up. You know, it's, it, Lord knows it's uh, hard enough to understand a Marvel movie if you start at the beginning of it, right? let alone try to catch somebody up who starts. But here's the point. Without really knowing the beginning, we can't understand what's happening in the middle, and we certainly can't know what's going on at the end. Now, the, the reason that I'm going into all of this detail with all of these crazy kind of imaginary scenarios is because in a very real way, this is exactly the plight of every person who's not yet a believer in Jesus who steps into a church on Christmas morning. Right? Here's this beautiful biblical account of the birth of Jesus, right? That's act two. And yet they know nothing about what already went on in act one, let alone what's going to go on in acts three and four. But all of that, remember Paul Harvey used to say, that's the rest of the story. Right, did I just date myself? Probably, right? It's Acts 1, 3, and 4 that really make Act 2 so significant. And Act 1 of the Christmas story begins way back at the beginning of the entire story, right? Way back in the first three chapters of the very first book of the Bible, back in the book of Genesis, right? Which records for us the creation of man and 
the fall of man. The Bible tells us in Genesis 1 that we were created in the image of God, right? God said, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. And because we were created in his image, we were created by him to be in relationship and to be in fellowship with him. That's the purpose for our lives. But no sooner do we get to chapter 3, chapter 3 now describes what we call the fall of man from that purpose. Right? The Bible teaches, of course, that Adam and Eve sinned, didn't they, in the ancient Garden of Eden. They chose their will over God's will. They chose what they wanted beyond what he commanded. They partook of that forbidden fruit, the one thing that God said they should stay away from in the garden. And he had told them that for their own protection. But they wanted it and they rebelled and they sinned and they took it. And that is known as the fall. Right? So the fall of Adam and Eve, right? They fell, think of it, they fell away from God's best. They fell away from that purpose that he had for their lives. And that introduced this spiritual death into the human condition. Right? It cut us off because of that rebellion from this spiritual relationship that we we're intended to have with God. Right? Romans says that because the carnal mind is enmity against God. So we're now at enmity right, with him. We're at war against him. We're estranged from him. Right? But the fall we know also introduced not just spiritual death, it introduced physical death. Right? Disease and sickness and all of these things that lead to death. It was a terrible and a tragic turn of events. But God, right? But the Lord in his grace, thankfully, didn't leave us in that place, right? Because it was in the context of the darkness and the hopelessness of the fall of man, right there in that very same chapter, Right, right in Genesis chapter 3, God makes this first glorious promise concerning the Messiah. Right, concerning this anointed one, this savior that he was going to send into the world now to provide mankind with a rescue. Right, with a salvation from every single consequence of the fall that Adam and Eve had brought into the world. Right, from all of the consequences that you and I deal with every single day, right, and this is what God said in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. This is God giving the gospel way back in the book of Genesis. It said, the Lord God said to the serpent, so that's the devil, because you've done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He, that is her seed, that's Jesus, shall bruise or crush your head or your authority, and you shall bruise his heel. So effectively what God says to Satan is, yes, you're going to do some damage to the coming Messiah, but ultimately all that that's going to accomplish, so speaking of the cross, all that that's going to accomplish is actually going to be the crushing of your authority in this world. And we notice 
that the wonder of the whole Christmas story starts right back here in the book of Genesis. God says in this very first initial prophecy about the Messiah, the first announcement of the gospel, notice that he says right here that the arrival of Jesus into the world is gonna be unique and it's gonna be miraculous because he's going to be born of the seed of a woman, right? That is, he's gonna be born without the seed of a man, that is, he's going to be born, what? Of a virgin. So all the way here, right back in Genesis 3, we begin this long, beautiful, power, powerful kind of a prophetic portrait of the coming Messiah. And it's this portrait now that then fills all of the rest of the entirety of the Old Testament. The whole Old Testament is the anticipation of it, and it's the preparation for it. And we know that the prophet Isaiah, so much later, declares this very same thing, now 700 years before the birth of Jesus. In Isaiah 7:14, it's a verse that we always consider at Christmas time, where it says that the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, right? Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. And that's precisely what Paul writes to us here. Again, the beginning of verse four, he says, when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So at the appointed time, when the people had been properly prepared, when the prophecies had been pronounced in perfect fulfillment of so many of those specific prophecies, God stepped into human history in the flesh, born as a baby here in Bethlehem. And there's three quick things that Paul mentions in this one verse, in this sort of a prophetic portrait. He, notice he declares that God sent forth his son. In other words, Jesus is the son of God, which means he has the nature of God. And as a result, Paul's declaring that he is God. Paul mentions that he was born of a woman, again, testifying to the miraculous virgin birth, and also that he was born under the law, meaning that he would be a Jew, right? He was and still is a Jew. And all of that would happen when the fullness of the time had come. All of that would happen in direct fulfillment of these 4,000 years of prophetic promises throughout the Old Testament, and all of them beginning way back there in the garden. And that is all act one, right? That's just the beginning of the story. And again, if we don't understand the beginning of the story, if I don't understand my need for a savior, of, if I don't understand my separated condition from God, if I don't understand God's promise to send a savior, then I really will have absolutely no appreciation for the birth of that savior or the provision of that savior or what that first Christmas morning was 2,000 years ago. Right? Without knowing any of these early chapters or at least something of the Old Testament as God dealt with the Jews and prepared them for the coming of their Messiah, then the magnitude and the majesty of the birth of Jesus is completely meaningless. And I'm like some woman standing out looking at a display of the nativity and thinking that the Christians have stolen Christmas. Right? We've missed all of Act 1. 
And act one is usually the longest act in a play, by the way. Not unlike this is the longest point that we'll make this morning. We're going to move faster now. Act two, of course, begins so beautifully with the glorious birth of Jesus, right? That's what we celebrate at Christmas time. That's where we have Mary and, and Joseph and traveling to Bethlehem and we've got the donkey, no room at the inn and we've got refuge in the stable with the animals. Then we have the angels and the heavenly host and the shepherds out in the field. Then their visit to come and see the baby and then the wise men who arrive at some point after that to pay tribute to this king. And all of that, understand, this was an event for which heaven had been preparing from eternity past, right? But the story, of course, we know doesn't end there with his birth because act three then is recorded in the gospels and they tell us that Jesus went on to live this perfect and sinless life and that he was crucified in order to provide mankind with this satisfying payment that was due for our sins. And of course that he didn't remain in that dead condition for very long, but then he rose from the dead on the third day, demonstrating his authority over death, right? uniquely qualifying him now to provide mankind with that same everlasting life. Because remember, you have to possess victory over death in order to be able to offer everlasting life to anyone else. And then that brings us now to kind of Paul's final point in this little passage, kind of the final thing we really want to consider this morning as we prepare for Christmas, and that's the big question, right? For what purpose was Jesus born? For what purpose did he live? For what purpose did he die? For what purpose did he resurrect from the dead? And of course, there's a whole host of reasons, right? We could take a year of Sundays and explore all those, but let's just limit ourselves to what's in our passage. Look what Paul tells us next. Again, verse four, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So put a star next to verse five, right? Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose again, first of all, in order to redeem us. And that Greek word that Paul uses there for redeem, it's specifically, it's a very specific word. It means to free someone, specifically a slave, to free them upon payment of a ransom. And it was a very powerful word. It was a very loaded word that Paul uses here under the inspiration of the Spirit. And the imagery that this word behind it, it, the imagery that it would have produced would have been very, very familiar if you lived at that time in the Roman Empire. Because slavery and slaves were very, very common throughout the Roman Empire. Best estimates were that there were probably between six and 10 million slaves, right? Anywhere between 10 and 20% of the total population of the Roman Empire were slaves. And of course, you get a slave by buying a slave, right? And so we, we picture, right, kind of that difficult image of these slaves being brought out by slave traders into a marketplace. And at that time, it would have been men and women and children 
of all ages and all races who were being sold into servitude, right? And having them stand up there on some kind of a raised platform, all surrounded by all of these men who were there now trying to purchase a slave. And then they start bidding against one another to buy that slave. And so this is this image that Paul's intending to bring into the mind of his first century readers, this whole process of the purchase of another human being. And then yet, not just to purchase that particular slave, right? Not just to outbid all of the other bidders and to be the highest bidder for that slave, but then once that's been done, then to do what no other slave owner does, right? Astonishingly then, that slave owner buys the slave, makes that slave his own, and then proceeds to turn around and to set that slave free. And Paul specifically uses this picture because it is, of course, the perfect picture of precisely what God has done for us in Jesus. Right? So the bigger picture of the Christmas story is that Jesus came to earth in the fullness of time to redeem us out of slavery. Right? Every one of us were once slaves to our sin. Maybe you remember it. I know that I remember it all too well. Right? Slaves to all of those fleshly appetites. Right? They say jump, and we jumped. Right? We obeyed all the desires of our flesh. We were slaves, the Bible says, to the devil. And then we were slaves to all of the guilt and all of the condemnation that came along with all of that. And yet God has not only purchased us out from under all of that through the sacrifice of his son, but he has then also completely set us free from all of that shame and all of that guilt. Jesus promised exactly that. In John chapter 8, he says, Therefore the son, speaking of himself, he said, If the son makes you free you shall be free indeed. And he does make us free. So Merry Christmas early, right? For the redemption and the liberation that's ours, right? Each and every one of us this morning who are born again because of the birth of that child and because of the sacrifice of that child and because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In effect, yeah, that's the Easter story, isn't it? But it's the Easter story that makes the Christmas story what it is, right? It's that wonder of our redemption from the bondage of that sin. And we need to both understand it and we really need to remember that, not just at Christmas time, but we need to remember it all the time. And we've talked about a man named John Newton, right? He's the man who wrote Amazing Grace, probably the most popular him, certainly in America. And John Newton was a man who understood how important it was to always remember the incredible wonder, right, of what Jesus had done for him. And remember, we've talked about the fact that he, when he was an only child, his mother died when he was very young, and he became a sailor working under his father's care and actually went out to work at sea when he was just 11 years old or so. And then as he grew up, there, he became the captain of his own ship, and it was a slave ship. And so John Newton was a man who had an active hand 
in the horrible degradation and the inhumanity of the slave trade of all of the early 1700s. But it was at the point when he was 23, it was March 10th, of 1748, his ship was in a storm and was in imminent danger of sinking off the coast of Newfoundland, and he cried out to God for mercy, and he found it. Right? His ship was saved, and he was saved. Right? He was saved physically, but most importantly, he was saved spiritually. And he never, ever forgot how amazing it was that God received him and saved him, especially because he understood how bad and wicked he was at his core. And so as the story goes, he wanted to keep that fresh in his memory. So when he got home, he had mounted across the, the wall above his fireplace mantle in his study, the words of Deuteronomy 15.15. It's the words that the Lord had declared to his own people, the Jews, and Deuteronomy 15.15 says that you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. And each, of, each and every one of us, of course, we too were once slaves down in Egypt, right? We were slaves to the world and to the devil and to our flesh, but we have been redeemed now and set free. Right, so... To understand the wonder of the Christmas miracle in Act 2, we need to understand our desperate condition from Act 1 and then understand the amazing grace of Act 3, right? To keep fresh in our minds what we once were and what we now have and who we are now in Jesus Christ, right? That we've been liberated from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin. It, it is amazing. God's grace is amazing. And yet then we notice... As if that weren't enough, right? But wait, there's more, right? Because we notice next, back in our text, still in verse 5, God doesn't just stop there. Because God isn't content with us just being set free from the penalty of sin or even from the power of sin. I would have been happy if that's all that Jesus came to provide me with. Amen? Right? That would be all the gift I could ever hope to receive from him, surely more than I could ever deserve. But Paul goes on here to describe that not only did Jesus come in the fullness of time, not only did he redeem us out of slavery, but then he came to adopt us into his family. Notice there it says there that we might receive the adoption as sons and daughters. And this was, and of course this still is, a very big deal. Understand that under Roman law, when a parent adopted a child, right, this was a very significant commitment that was being made by the man and the woman who were doing the adopting. Because when you adopted a child who is now coming into your family, that child now had the same full rights as every other child already in your family. Right? At the very moment of that adoption, everything changed for that child. And of course, most often, the child being adopted was probably an orphan. And so now they've been adopted into this family. And now as a result of that, they are entering into a quality of life that they could have never, ever known. 
everything had just changed for them. Right, their identity changed, their present circumstances changed, their entire future was now forever changed. And of course, the very same thing is true, isn't it, for every one of us as Christians. Right, we're made members of God's family and everything changes as a result of that. Right, because of this adoption, our identity has completely changed the moment we become a Christian. Of course, Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says that if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. That's a new identity, right? Old things have passed away, all things have become new, right? Also, our present circumstances are changed by virtue of the fact that we've been adopted. Peter wrote about this when he said to us as Christians that we are now a chosen generation, right? A royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that we might proclaim the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And he says this to people who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Right? Our entire present circumstances have completely changed. And as a result of this adoption, our entire future reality is equally changed. And here's a great thing. Understand, God now speaks about my future. God speaks about your future as a Christian as being so sure. Right, The fact that we will one day stand in the glory of heaven is so sure that God speaks about it now, even though we're still here on this earth, God speaks of our heavenly future as being so certain that he speaks about it in the past tense. Right, familiar passage, Romans chapter eight, Paul says that whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. All of that in the past tense because it is a foregone conclusion and a firm reality in our lives. So merry early Christmas, right? Because of Jesus, we are adopted into God's family and we are now made a part of his family forever. And notice this, I think this is super cool, right? Maybe I'm just a Bible geek. Notice Paul says that we receive the adoption as sons. We don't just recover it. And I think that that's important because what it tells us in a sense is that we gain something in Jesus Christ that's even greater than what Adam ever had, right? Adam was never adopted as a son of God in the same way that you and I are, right? So the point is that our redemption isn't just a restoration of what was lost in Adam, although it is that, but it is so much more than just that, amen? Right, we are given more in Jesus than Adam ever had. But wait, right, there's more. 
Because notice next in verse 6, Paul talks about this sonship that we're now enjoying in the family of God. And then he says, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. In other words, so Jesus was born into the world on that first Christmas. He lived the life that he lived. He died on the cross for our sins. He was raised again on the third day in order to bring us into this deeply personal relationship with God. You realize that God could have adopted us and shunned us. Right? He could have adopted us and kind of put us off in a corner, maybe isolated us from the rest of the family and from himself, but he didn't do that. He adopted us so that he could bring us into what is referred to as an Abba kind of a relationship with him. And this has nothing to do with being a dancing queen. Right? Or, or of taking a chance on me. Okay, that may have been too much even for me, right? Too dumb? Too dumb? But the word Abba in the scriptures has nothing to do with a Swedish rock band from the 70s, even if they did have some fun songs, right? The word Abba is actually an Aramaic word that means daddy. And Jesus did what he did. He was born into the world on that first Christmas. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose again on the third day. He provided us with this amazing salvation in order to bring us into this beautiful daddy kind of a relationship with God. And it speaks about the intimacy and the simplicity and the innocence of a child. The beauty of this relationship with God that Jesus has now made available to us and that God wants to have with each one of us. And one Greek language expert wrote this, speaking of the word there in Aramaic. He says that Abba is an Aramaic affectionate diminutive for father used only in the intimacy of the family circle and it passed without change right into the vocabulary of Greek-speaking Christians. And what's interesting as we look, we're going to see it, who knows when, if we ever get there in Mark 14, but it's the very same word, that's word Abba, the very same word was a word used by Jesus himself as he prayed for himself just before the cross. Right As he prayed to the Father, remember he was agonizing in the Garden of Eden before the crucifixion, Garden of Eden, pardon me, Garden of Gethsemane, right before the crucifixion. It says he went a little further, he fell on the ground, he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him, and he said, Abba, Father. He said, Daddy, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, he said, not what I will, but what you will. And so understand here in our Galatians text that what Paul is saying now is that by the spirit of Jesus that's living inside of us, that we now have the ability to be on the same level of a beautiful familial kind of intimacy with the heavenly father that Jesus was. Just think on that for a moment. You know, so often we kind of throw around the phrase, and it's a good one, but we talk about the fact that Christianity is a relationship with God. 
and it is. But I think we can see here that even that just really doesn't quite capture the essence of this Abba relationship that we're supposed to have with God, right? Really speaking of our intimacy and the security. Notice Paul says here, we don't whisper Abba. What does he say? He says we can cry it out. We can cry it out like we are calling out to our daddy. I remember years and years ago, the very first trip I ever took to Israel, I was amazed because you'll see these scores of little children running around and they go, Abba, 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 as they run and jump into their daddy's arms. So Merry Christmas, right? This is the kind of incredible intimacy with our Heavenly Father that's been given to us. Not only have we been made a part of a family and then brought into this beautiful, personal kind of a relationship to Him, but wait, right? There's more. Because look at our very last verse this morning. Verse 7 says, Therefore, you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So Jesus went through all that he did, right, including his birth, that we might become an heir of God in Christ, right? The Bible, of course, declares to us as Christians that Jesus is going to return for us one day and he's going to take us into the heaven that he is even now personally preparing for us and that he is personally preparing us for. Right, and we're going to enjoy the perfection of that holy environment forever and ever. So the bigger picture of the Christmas story right, is that Jesus came in the fullness of time to redeem us out of slavery, to adopt us into God's family, and to prepare us for this heavenly eternity. Right, all of that is ours. Right? We are heirs. It's part of our inheritance because not only of his birth, but his death and his burial and his resurrection. So all of Act 4 is eternally ours because of the sacrifice of Act 3 following his coming in Act 2 in answer to our desperate situation that was created in Act 1. Did you follow that? Right? And this is what Jesus says about heaven. In John 14, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And sometimes you might hear a Christian talk about Maybe they're talking about some good thing that just happened in their life or about some particular blessing of God that's a part of their lives. And they'll say something like, you know, wow, all of this, what? And heaven too, right? It was actually apparently a movie from 1940, right? With that very same title. But that's precisely what Jesus has provided for us. All of this now that we enjoy in this life, but then heaven after this life. And that's what Christmas is actually about. So Christmas is actually about God's entire redemptive plan in four acts. 
right? It's about the birth of the Savior come to save us from our sins, to deliver us from the power and the penalty of sin, to one day deliver us into this perfect kind of peerless glory of heaven itself that we can enjoy now this relationship with God. Remember Paul said that we're going to enjoy it. He says, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then he says what? Face to face. He says, now we only know in part, but then we shall know also just as we are known. And that glorious gift of salvation, right, is this gift that he makes available to every single human being in the world, every single one of us in this room this morning. It is the best gift ever given at Christmas. But I know you've heard it said, right, a gift is only ours if we what? If we receive it. And any gift is useless unless it could be of infinite value sitting there before you wrapped up in a box. But until I open it and actually make it my own, it doesn't do me any good at all. And it's the same way, isn't it, with salvation, right? This glorious gift of salvation that God has given to each and every one of us, that gift is sitting there freely available to each one of us, but we need to personally take that extra step, right, as an act of our will to receive that gift into our life, to open that gift up, right, simply by coming to him, even in the privacy of our own hearts and saying, God, I believe that what your word says about me is true. I understand a little bit more now about act one. I understand that I'm a sinner and that I'm separated spiritually from you, but I also believe that you love me. And now I understand a little bit more about Act 2 and that you loved me so much that you sent your son into the world when the fullness of time had come. And I understand now a little bit more about Act 3, right? That you sent Jesus in order that he would die on the cross and provide that full and satisfying payment for my sin. I believe that he was buried. I believe that he rose again on the third day. I believe that he is the Savior, and that this salvation and me putting my faith in him is what pleases you. So now I want to turn from my own self-will. I want to turn from this direction that I've been going in my life. And now I want to go in the direction of you. I want to turn from my sin. I want to put my faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins and make him my savior today. And the instant that we do that, Right? Our salvation isn't a progression, it's an instant. Because the instant that we do that, that's when the greatest miracle that can possibly happen in the life of a person will happen in your life. And that's that moment when the Holy Spirit will come into your life now and he will start to bring about all of these things that we've talked about this morning. And he'll begin now for you this Abba relationship that you were created to have. And he'll begin now to prepare you for act four, right? To be able to spend your eternity together with him in heaven. So Merry Christmas, right? All of this and heaven too. And of course, if that's what you want, if that's what you need this morning, there will be people here up front as we worship that would love to pray with you and to really begin that relationship today. But just one more quick note of just some personal application for some of us who are already Christians. And I'm not exactly sure who this is for. But I want us to be encouraged personally 
as we think about the Christmas story and, and its place kind of within God's entire redemptive plan, remember, it was in the fullness of time, right? It was at just the right time that God sent his son Jesus. It wasn't too early and it wasn't too late, although we might look at it from a human perspective and we might wonder, but the timing was right from heaven's perspective, which is to say that God does things when he does things. I know that was super profound, right? And you waited nearly an hour, right, for that. But God does things when he does things and his timing is always right. And I bring it up because I know that some of you personally are waiting in your lives for a Christmas scale miracle, right? In some aspect of your life, you're waiting for an act two kind of a rescue from an act one kind of a situation that's going on. But rest assured, the Christmas story reminds us that it is coming, it's coming in the fullness of time. And you may feel like you're stuck right now Remember, there was 400 years of silence that came immediately before that first Christmas. And you might feel like you're stuck in that 400 year, that intertestamental period, that period of silence. But remember, Christmas is coming. And you're just right in the middle, maybe, of your story, right? Which is the bigger picture of the Christmas story. Amen? Amen. Thank you guys for your patience. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this morning, and we thank you for Christmas. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we have uh, in this season. Lord, every day is Christmas for a Christian. But we thank you, Lord, for this day that's set aside next week as we can celebrate this. Lord, we thank you for the opportunities that we'll have to encourage others as they celebrate it, Lord, to help them to see the part that Christmas plays in the bigger story of your redemptive plan for all of mankind. And so, Father, give us opportunities to encourage those around us. Lord, for those who are here today who don't yet know you, Lord, we pray even now that you would be quickening their hearts, Lord, by your spirit, that you would be drawing them unto yourself, and that, Lord, if they do have questions or if they want to take that step, Lord, that even now as we begin to worship, Lord, that you would bring them unto you, Lord, and that they would make that commitment, Lord, for the first time. And so, Father, we pray as we worship now that you would help to just implant these things deep in the good soil of our hearts. Lord, may it yield a hundredfold in each of our lives. And so we thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.